On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Brad Littlejohn and Claire Morell about the topic of big tech and theology. So we cover topics like just what is big tech and how does it have anything to do with theological formation? Should we be concerned about big tech? Should we participate in the platforms that big tech provide us? How do, how do we ensure strong, healthy theology alongside these large corporations? And how should we think about the concentration of power that these entities have? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it inevitable? What does that all look like? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this was going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. But in thinking seriously, we've tried to endeavor to create or promote or cultivate a certain type of intellectual culture that prizes things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So I think Brandon and I, we've tried to walk this fine line of we want to be serious about our doctrine, but we don't want to be jerks about it. We want to be kind, we want to be charitable, and all those things. But we also want to be very vigorous uh, in our thinking. So we've tried to to chart, hopefully, this this narrow path that prizes both of those sort of things, the gentleness that we find that is uh, part of the wisdom from above in James 3. So we seek those things, we try to promote those things as best we can. And today, I'm really looking forward to introducing you all to Dr. Brad Littlejohn and Claire Morell, who... This is my first time meeting both of them, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. I mean, I've been long admired Brad's writing and the work that he does at the Davenant Institute, so I th- think very highly of him, As and I was introduced to Claire from Brad, so I, I think this is going to be a fun conversation. We're going to be talking about big tech and theology and how those things intersect and related questions, so... I imagine you guys are going to have a ton of fun with us as we talk. So before we jump in, I'd love to hear a little bit bio about each of you so our listeners who aren't familiar can get a little bit of a sense of where you are, what you're doing, and then maybe why this topic has become of any sort of interest for you. So Claire, I'll let you go first, and then Brad, you can follow up after she's done. Great. Yes. Um, My name is Claire Morell, and I am a policy analyst at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is a public policy think tank based in Washington, D.C., and we really focus on policy issues from a Judeo-Christian worldview. And what I'm doing for them right now is I'm heading up a big tech project there, and um, we are also... um, increasingly interested, and this is kind of what led me into this topic, in the censorship that we are seeing from big tech, particularly against conservative viewpoints and also Christian viewpoints. Increasingly, um, they're censoring religious voices. And so that is kind of our main focus, as well as the harms that we are seeing from big tech to children and families, the online pornography epidemic being one of those, and also just the prevalence of um, online child exploitation and sex trafficking on many of these platforms. So those are just a few of the things that... um, are what brought me into being interested about big tech. Yeah, and I'm Brad Littlejohn. I'm the president, founder and president of the Davenant Institute, which is dedicated to uh, retrieving and renewing Christian wisdom for the contemporary church, and uh, particularly with an emphasis on uh, recovering the wisdom of the Protestant Reformation. And that might seem very distant from concerns of, of big tech, uh, but 
you know, if you think what the Reformation was about, what the Reformation was enabled above all by, I mean, obviously a movement of the spirit, obviously a confluence of many factors, but a technological revolution, a communications revolution was a key part of it, right? The printing press totally changed the terms of uh, the, the the power relationships within the church and the way that the word of God was communicated and, and debated. And uh, that that caused a lot of harm. It also created a lot of opportunity for a lot of good, and the Protestant reformers made use of that. And so I've always been particularly interested in the ways in which it, it's become increasingly clear that we are going through a, a similar kind of civilizational um, transition of, you know, one of the great transitions in the history of civilization, I think, uh, on par with the invention of the printing press that we've seen with digital media over the last 30 years. And I think the shakeup that it's going to cause, already beginning to cause, but I think we'll see a lot more in the next 50 years, the shakeup that it's causing within the church, within education, within um, the power structures of society is similarly, um, you know, similarly earth-shaking. And we, we, if we're... If we're going to uh, make it into an opportunity to bless the church rather than a catastrophe for the church, uh, I think it, it could be either. Um, but I think we have to have the same kind of um, wisdom that uh, the Protestant reformers showed in trying to um, harness the new tools of communication in their in their own age. So, uh, so yeah. But with you know with that kind of connection in mind, the 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 Christian relationship to digital technology has been a a research and writing interest of mine probably for the last 10, 12 years or so. And then as I've gotten more into working in the realm of political theory as also a senior fellow for the uh, Edmund Burke Foundation, the the kind of political ramifications of big tech and how we think about, uh, how we think about it almost as a, as a new form of feudalism, um, as I've argued, I think, has become of particular interest to me as well. Let's start by explaining exactly what we mean when we say big tech. I think a lot of the listeners are, are going to be familiar with what we're talking about here, but maybe let's start with the definition of big tech. Who is that when we when we use that label? And then this is up to you on how, how much detail you want to go in, but maybe tell a little bit of the story about how we got to the place that we're at right now uh, when it comes to big tech. Sure. I'm happy to start with that. So I think um, we define big tech as this group of dominant technology companies that are exerting incredible control over our public square and our main channels of communication today. So these would namely be Google, Facebook, now Meta, Apple, Amazon, and Twitter. And most of these are also dominant in their respective markets, um, except for maybe Twitter. But the main reason they've been grouped together in this group, Big Tech, is not mainly economics, though that is part of it, but because of their now oversized political and social influence. Um, and so particularly over our speech. And they also exert their really market dominance power to crush would-be competitors, making it nearly impossible for startup alternatives to break into these markets. And that's another part of the problem as well. So they've been classified this way and grouped together just because of their amount of vast control over our speech, our communications today, and really their ability to influence our public square, our conversations, um, and deciding what speech is really acceptable for us as Americans. So um, I would just say that that is really how they've been 
classified and categorized together. And, and how we got there, I think now that is much more of the kind of economic question is how did they, how were they allowed to get so big um, and acquire so much market power that really alternatives don't have a chance to break into these spaces? Um, and and I think that that market power is really then the answer to why they're able to exercise such control over our speech. So they're definitely linked um, issues. I don't know, Brad, if you have anything to add to that. I mean, sh- sure. I mean, you, you know a lot more about this side of things than, than I do. By um, In terms of how we got where we are, uh, the, the biggest, best resource I've encountered is Shoshana Zuboff's Age of Surveillance Capitalism. I, I, I imagine you're familiar with it. And uh, do you agree roughly with her account? I'd be curious before I, before I go and extol it and uh, summarize it, since you know more about the topic, but. Yes, I will say I've heard of it. I haven't read it for myself, okay. so I don't want to like speak to all the arguments. But so if you've read it, you should just go ahead and, and share your thoughts. Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I think you know the, her, the biggest argument, right, is that uh, what we have is a a new kind of capitalism, right, in which the user is the product, right. I mean, this is um, you know what's the, the line is that you know if you can't. Um, if if it's free, if, if if it's free, then that means that you are you are the product, not the customer, right? And uh, we we tend to think of ourselves as in the position of customers vis-a-vis all of these uh, big tech entities, and, and you know something like Amazon, we do actually pay for products there, uh, but even on Amazon, to a large extent, the reason Amazon is able been able to be as successful as they are is they're not just a retailer, right? They are a retailer that has a vast and completely unprecedented troves of data on everything about their users. So um, they've been able to, to leverage that into all kinds of profit sources that wouldn't be available to ordinary retailers. But if we think about something like Google, which for a long time had no paid products at all that, that that you and I were using, right? The, the paid products were the things available to the advertisers. Their customers were advertisers. You and I are actually the products. So um, it's this business model in which the commodity is your personal behavior, your habits, your interests, your um, you know browsing behaviors, your uh, you know your personality really becomes the product. And this is not, this is ultimately, it's a political and legal decision to choose to treat that data as intellectual property that properly belongs to Facebook, Google, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, You know, her argument is that we could have structured the laws in such a way that users have first and foremost, have in the first place, they have ownership of their own data. And then, therefore, they can set the terms by which that data is uh, used and monetized by these platforms. And sure, the, you know, these platforms under a lot of pressure have introduced, you know, you, you have your privacy preferences and so on. But it's the default is they own and can use everything about you, you know. And then it's just maybe you can opt out of certain things, right? But the default should be the other way around. The default is you own and you have say over your own data. And if they want to use it, then they have to demonstrate that they're 
providing some kind of compensation that justifies that. No, that that's right. And I would just add briefly um, onto what Brad was saying, just that I think part of the issue in how they've gotten to where they are today is because it, it's a very new kind of market, these digital markets where the user is the product, where we're not paying for their services with money. We're paying with our time, our attention, and our data. And I think that has been a complicated then challenge for traditional kind of antitrust laws, antitrust enforcement to um, know how to address those types of issues, um, given that the traditional metric antitrust law often uses is price to measure if there's harm to consumers or not. And that has been a challenge in this space. And I think is, you know, part of then how these companies have been able to get so big. Um, There hasn't been that type of traditional enforcement because it is a different model. Um, As Brad was saying, it's a model based on our data and our time and our attention. So as I think about this topic of big tech, I mean, I'd imagine probably a lot of our listeners like they're, they're interested just purely political, like thinking through those sort of questions. But I think personally, I'm also curious about how big tech influences theology and our theological formation, our local churches, our even institutions, how it's influencing, changing those things. So maybe we just ask the question now that we know what it is, how is that changing those things? Because I mean, even me growing up, I mean, I remember when there was really no social media and then, you know, MySpace. I mean, I was guilty of doing the surveys on MySpace and the top eight and all that kind of stuff. And just remembering how things have progressed since then and how it really has almost, at least in my experience, it really has changed my local church experience, youth group. I mean, I don't know how many of you guys went to youth group growing up as a kid, but wildly different with that in place than it was without it in place. It changed even just your own social relationships. So that's a long way of asking, how is big tech influencing our theological formation? Sure. Well, I think, um, I mean, I would probably start off by distinguishing perhaps, um, you know, digital technology from the question of big tech, right? And I think it is, it's conceivable, and this is at least what Zuboff is arguing, it's conceivable to have a world in which we had a lot of the transformation in, in digital technology tools, and we had we had smartphones, and we had you know uh, things like YouTube and things like Twitter, uh, and yet it was more decentralized, and you didn't have a few companies having all this power. So uh, I'll get to that question, but let's at least first talk about just how uh, these new forms of technology, regardless of the ownership structure, you know, I think um, would impact theological formation. And uh, the first thing to say is that um, that our Christianity is above all a religion of the word, right? Um, that the communication of the written and spoken word has always been absolutely foundational to what Christianity is in a way that it it isn't for most world religions. And so, as Christians, I think we have a very a huge stake in ensuring that um, uh, that the the tools, the technological tools that we have are uh, keeping our focus upon the word and are aiding are aiding the truthful transmission of the word. And so the question is, does digital in what ways is digital media impacting that? I mean one thing that's that's obvious that's frequently commented on is the way in which uh, the proliferation of digital media has encouraged a culture of 
images rather than words. And, uh, you know, the, the rising generation, you know, there's, there's anecdotally, and I think some studies, you know, documenting the ways in which the rising generation is so much less literate, really, in the proper sense of the word, uh, unable to, to digest text that is, you know, in, you know, a, whole, a full solid page of text, right, as opposed to tweet-sized snippets. And I think that's a matter of great concern to us as Christians, because the Bible wasn't given to us in, you know, tweet-sized snippets. Um, you know, aside from maybe certain certain portions of the wisdom literature that are presented in the form of, um, you know, uh, brief maxims and aphorisms, the Bible requires us to be able to engage with dense, lengthy, connected narrative, and in the case of something like Book of Romans, you know, long-form theological argumentation. So to the extent that Christians are simply going with the flow and making uh, sort of following the path of least resistance in the kinds of communications tools that they are using in their private lives, but even more so, I mean, even worse is when you have churches that are, I think, just kind of naively saying, hey, let's use these, these media as our primary means of getting the gospel out there. And not realizing that, uh, you know, as Marshall McLuhan said so long ago, the medium is the message. That if if you're using a medium that is um, sort of anti-word, ultimately, then uh, you're not, <laughs> you're ultimately undermining your goal of getting the word of God out there. So I think that's, that's a really important thing. Um, I think another important thing is just to say as Christians we are we're each accountable to God for uh, for our own actions for our own behavior right and so the way in which digital technology has come to function and particularly I think big tech aiding and abetting this that's really blurring the line between personal agency and responsibility and um, and then just kind of outside forces. I think this is something really dangerous and that needs a lot of careful scrutiny, right? Um, it's, it, you know, anyone who's spent a long time sort of, you know, like browsing on Facebook or, or, or on, you know, on any number of sites is very aware of the experience of saying to themselves after 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever, like, what am I doing? Why am I here? Why am I clicking on this? I didn't, I don't, I don't want to be doing this. I didn't, I don't remember choosing to, to spend this much time. Uh, and they just kind of, you just kind of get caught up in the flow of the thing, which is designed to do that. It's, these tools are designed basically to deprive us of our agency and um, appeal. I mean, the people who design this stuff are making use of all the most state of the art research in to psychology and, and neuroscience and, and understanding. And they know how to basically bypass our rational decision making and go straight to our kind of um, the, the, the I, I don't know, I don't remember the exact terminology, but or the, or the limbic system, as it's called. Um, and so that we are responding to stimuli without really being aware of what we're doing or, um, or choosing to do it. Uh, and, and yet... Of course, from a Christian account, that to some extent, that's true of all sin. Sin is a deprivation of agency. Sin is addiction. Sin is irrational. 
Uh, and what we see with um, these technological forms is that they are um, basically trying to turn us all into addicts that are incapable of uh, freely choosing the good that we recognize as the good. And of course, that happens in extreme and extremely destructive forms, like with pornography addiction. And then it happens in milder forms that still can be utterly disruptive to family life and community life and church lives and just, you know, just, you know, Facebook addiction or whatever. So um, I think all that stuff needs to be really seriously thought about. I think, again, that's a feature of the technological tools as such. Uh, maybe that could be, a, even if there were 20 different Facebooks out there all competing, we might in some ways still have that problem. But I do think the consolidation of them into a few large platforms makes it that much more difficult to fight back, that much more difficult to hold them accountable, um, and more difficult to actually see the kinds of, um, you know, influences that they're, uh, the ways in which they're manipulating us. Yeah. And I would just add, I think, Brad, you were getting at this, but these products are not neutral. Like the services and the products that big tech is putting out there, they're, they're not neutral. They're actively trying to addict you. And particularly the way they've evolved over time, they have very sophisticated algorithms now to keep you spending as much time and attention as possible on their platforms. And that's because that's how they make money. That's uh, their profit-driven businesses. They get their ad revenue um, by the more time and attention that they take from you. And they're selling that to advertisers um, as well as your data, as Brad already mentioned. And so I think, you know, in just terms of thinking about theological formation, we really are shaped by the influences that we are taking in, the forces that we allow to act to um, really kind of carve out the canyons of our souls. Is Are we being uh, influenced by God's word or are we being influenced by the kind of endless streaming um, from these social media platforms that provides kind of endless content um, that are really, I think, actively trying to desensitize us to the the reality around us. They'd rather have us live um, in this kind of alternative reality, this alternative universe they're creating. I mean, you've seen even recently Meta is trying to create the metaverse. Like they want you to spend your whole life on their platform. Um, and so I think we just need to be aware of that. And that is their business model. And um, and so we just, as we're taking in that content, being aware that, um, you know, as Brad is saying, they're, they're really actively depriving us of our agency um, in the ways that they're trying to addict us to their, their products. There's a passage from C.S. Lewis I would love to read that I think is profound, you know, it's a little bit long, but I think it's just so striking. Um, this is in the screw tape letters. Um, so, and I, I mean, I think we really should think about this kind of thing in terms of, um, it seems extreme to talk about in terms of demonic possession, but I think really what we have with big tech is kind of the principalities and powers of our, of our own era. So he says, um, that, um, okay. He's talking about, uh, screw tape is talking about how the, the, um, you want to keep, keep people from thinking of the enemy, uh, and therefore, he says, um, as this condition becomes more fully established, you'll be gradually freed from the tiresome business of providing real pleasures as temptations. As the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness, and as habit 
renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder for, to forego, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return, so that at least he may at last he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. The Christians describe the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong, and nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why, in the gratification of curiosity so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, in drumming of fingers and kicking of heels, in whistling tunes that he does not like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. And I think, you know, it's just astounding... That is a description of exactly what uh, yeah. social media does to us, but you know, mm. sixty years before its invention. Yeah, you, you, you've mentioned these algorithms and how it puts certain things before us that make us respond in a certain way. Um, I wonder if you guys could talk about what that does to discourse in general, um, and and how are we able to somehow get out of because now it just pushes everybody into their own little echo chamber and then that further polarizes us um is there any way for us to kind of break out of this cycle of polarization sure i mean i can just say that i mean you basically said it in your question that these algorithms are driving us into our own kind of bubbles um where we kind of are in these echo chambers where we just see all the content and speech and things that we agree with and so that is it, we are seeing a really polarizing effect i don't know um jonathan height has um a lot of research on this and he's a professor at nyu really um intelligent and he's written a lot about the harms of social media particularly on children but also just the polarizing effect on our discourse today and, and, you know, I think that's something we need to be concerned about in the church as well, um, that big tech really is affecting our means of communication. We have now really opted <laughs> for communicating online on these platforms instead of having real person conversations where we wouldn't say something to someone's face, but we'll post it on social media. And so part of that is because these algorithms um, really pick up the most extreme content. That is the content that gets promoted um, because that's the content that does the best on their platform. The most sensational, hyperbolic content is what then ends up reaching the most people. And so I think we do need to be really aware of that. Um, in terms of how we address that, I mean, the algorithm level this is where Congress is now considering all these bills about, um, you know, holding 
tech companies accountable for their algorithms um, and not allowing them to have Section 230 immunity, which is the current law kind of governing the internet that allows these platforms to not be held liable for third-party content on their platforms. But people are now saying, wait a second, these algorithms, that's your design, that's your product. You shouldn't be immune from the results that we're seeing now from these algorithms. And so I think that's a bigger public policy question, something that I spend my time thinking and writing about. But I think just as, as Christians, as church members, we need to be just aware of the effects that these algorithms have and not be so sucked into having all of our conversations and discourse happening on these platforms, but really fighting to go back to in-person conversations um, and discussions and debates that are really healthy for us and for the unity of the church to not allow the algorithm and the way that the social media platforms are designed to to divide so, us. So, Claire, you're in D.C. You're thinking about this a lot. I'm just curious, uh, what are those practical sort of ways that you really encourage people to take those steps? Because a lot of times I think we can tell people, hey, you need to actually like go meet and have coffee with this person, but it's it's harder than it sounds, even though it doesn't, it shouldn't sound that hard, but it is. No, that's a great question. Well, and that's why I would say in terms of practically fighting back, right, we do that at several levels. So there's the individual level. It starts with us thinking about how we're using these products, how much time and attention we're spending on them, um, as well as thinking about these for our children. So for those of us who have children, I think just being very aware uh, that these companies are actively trying to addict our children um, at younger and younger ages. And we want our children, as Christians particularly, to be present in the world around them, to have real friendships, to taste and see that God's creation is good. And so I think that starts with us, even as parents, how we model our own use of technology, but also the rules um, and boundaries that we put around technology in our homes, um, specifically thinking that children, they really do not need to be on these social media platforms. There's there's really not a benefit. There's kind of only a lot of harms out there. And then I think we think about this on the church level, right? Like our pastors, our theologians um, have a role in, in kind of warning their congregants and their students about the dangers of social media, particularly, you know, in the Bible, we're told not to love things of this world and social media is clearly of this world. Um, and so I think in, in their sermons, as they're expositing God's word, you know, an application that flows out of that is going to be just making people aware of the kind of uh, worldliness and the distraction, you know, that quote that Brad was reading to us from C.S. Lewis, um, you know, that is going to be trying to pull us away from God and his word um, through these social media platforms. And so um, I think that's another important level to address it on, as well as I would say, too, to individuals um, you know, think about starting your own businesses um, to provide alternatives and, and not just in the social media realm, but particularly at the kind of web infrastructure um, hosting kind of services level and even banking and financial institutions to really provide um, alternatives to conservatives who are being increasingly censored and canceled by these institutions. Um and then lastly, on the government level, which is what I spend my time really focused on, I think the three tools, and I don't want to get too technical, but the three tools really that are being debated and that are available to us in addressing some of these harms is Section 230 reform, which, as I mentioned previously, is the law that's currently providing immunity um, to these platforms 
it was, you know, originally designed to give them immunity from third-party content hosted on these platforms. But they're not really these neutral bulletin boards that they were when the internet was coming about in 1996 when the law was written. They're now very sophisticated um, with their algorithms. And so there's a lot of talk in Congress going on about how do we how do we amend and update that law to reflect the current realities and and to hold tech accountable for their bad behavior for um, things that are really their own conduct or their own product design. Um, there's not necessarily agreement on one reform, but that is something that's being actively debated. And and honestly, the courts could also step in and, and kind of correct some of the current issues um, by some of the precedents that have been set. And then the second tool on the policy levels, antitrust law, which I mentioned previously, like is the main body of law that governs, you know, how we decide, um, you know, if a company in is getting too large and, and they're harming consumers and they're harming our interests. And part of the problem is the traditional metric of price doesn't apply in these markets. And so we need more creative, um, aggressive enforcement of our existing antitrust laws in these digital markets to look at other types of harms. Um, censorship, for example, is a harm. If we look at uh, price as like an adjusted measure of quality, you know, there's a decline in the quality of the product um, if we are being censored. And then there's other ways like our time, our attention, and our data. So those are some um, areas kind of for updating our antitrust enforcement, and it might even take an updating to our existing antitrust laws. The last thing I'll quickly mention, which has been gaining, I think, a lot of attention recently because of a statement Justice Thomas put out this past spring, is this idea of common carrier law that these companies are essentially acting as um, historical common carriers, that these are channels of communication that we want to ensure everyone has equal access to, that they serve all comers equally. And so, um, you know, that could be done at the federal or the state level. Texas introduced a bill along those lines to just basically say you can't discriminate against people based on their viewpoint, political or religious, that everyone needs to have access to these communication channels, that the government has an interest in ensuring that although private businesses operate these channels, that they're open for equal access to kind of all comers. So those are just big, sorry, that was like a big kind of overview, but that is what is really being debated currently in Washington, D.C., are those different um, policy approaches um, in terms of addressing it on a governmental level. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. Brad, I think you, you had something you wanted to add just a moment ago. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I'd be interested in maybe if we have time later pursuing some of those, those policy questions um, and how we should think about censorship, because, of course, we do have attention where on the one hand these platforms censor too much and on the other hand they, they censor too little there's a lot of you know even on relatively family-friendly platforms like you know facebook or youtube there's all kinds of really objectionable content that we might wish was censored more but um so we might talk about that more later i don't know if we have time but uh, i just i want to go back to the your remark about maybe what churches could do or just how we could think about this pastorally and i think it's important to realize you know when we talk about these algorithms you know, steering, privileging the most extreme content and, you know, it's not, why is that? It's it's not because there's just like these malevolent people at Facebook rubbing their hands together in glee and saying, hey, let's see if we can, you know, really make them angry at each other, right? No, it's it's because they want, uh, they want the most predictable behavior possible, right? Because that's the most monetizable behavior. 
And what is the most predictable behavior? What is it human beings are most likely to do? Well, they're likely to follow the path of least resistance. We're likely to do whatever's easiest to do. And so then these platforms take that and then they just try to reinforce that, you know, and dig that groove deeper and deeper and make it more and more a path of least resistance. So our sin nature is just inclined to whatever is easiest. And what is the easiest for us? What's easiest is engaging with stuff that, you know, we already agree with, you know, that we already agree with, but maybe, you know, um, particularly something that perhaps is a little bit more outrageous, like this, we kind of think that, but we would never, we would never quite say that, but then we're excited to hear somebody else say that, right? And so then that just kind of amps up the level of discourse and it, it keeps, keeps getting more and more heated. But um, we don't like having to grapple with uh, alternative viewpoints. It's hard work. It's hard work having a mature debate with somebody whom, you know, Christian brother, especially someone, you can't just dismiss them, but you got to reckon with the fact that they see things differently. And so because we don't like that, we don't tend to click on that stuff as much. And so then Facebook says, okay, well, I won't show it to you, right? And then we get these echo chambers. And I think, you know, pastors and churches just need to uh, recognize that this this is what we are dealing with. And it's a matter of um, really, really urgent Christian discipleship to say to people, look, this is it's hard work. It is really hard work to have relationships and conversations with people that you might say have strong political differences with. Uh, but it's absolutely necessary, right? And I think, you know, I mean, this is, this is, it's not a new thing, right? I mean, they, again, these platforms are simply exploiting sin tendencies that you see going all the way back. So you see this in the New Testament. This is what the New Testament churches are dealing with. Uh, and so I think churches need to think about, um, in terms of the programs they do, um, like really intentionally saying we need to create spaces, we need to create, you know, our, whatever, our Sunday school time, our small group time, whatever, it, like that are just dedicated to um, forcing people to articulate diverse perspectives and seriously debate those diverse perspectives. Um, and I think there's a need for, and this is going to, this, this is to happen in interpersonally at face-to-face in local communities. A lot of it is going to happen online too, that uh, the, the internet's a great tool for bringing a huge number of voices to the conversation that might not otherwise be able to be there. But we need people uh, who can try to intentionally model online conversations. People need to see what good, thoughtful disagreement looks like online. And so, um, I think, you know, this is some, one of the things Davenant Institute has been trying to do in various ways, but uh, creating fora that are not just, you know, it's not just a blog for like a bunch of like-minded content, but, you know, where people can actually see people who share the same Christian commitment, but different viewpoints on contemporary issues, like really hashing those out in a mature way. And again, that's going to take a lot of hard work, a lot of thought, but that that's the need of the hour. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that makes sense that... I wonder, I mean, how, how different sort of like, I guess, dispositions and virtues do we need to cultivate depending on the platform? So I, I know that this is different than just Google sort of thing um, and all that goes on in big tech. I'm thinking, I guess, social media specifically here because I think of Instagram versus something like Twitter or Facebook. I think they have different potential vices. So I think of Instagram. I mean, I can't tell you how many girls I've heard 
I need to take a month break from Instagram because of the comparison game and all the things that can happen with that. Whereas it seems like on, on Twitter, it's almost, I need to take a break because I literally hate everybody I talk to. So uh, how is it? Uh, it? I mean, just what are the different virtues that we need to be cognizant of depending on the platform? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I did a, I wrote a series a few years ago called Seven Deadly Sins in Digital Age. And I think, you know, we could start with, um, you know, those, those traditional seven deadly sins. Um, and yeah, and I think um, it does differ some by platform. So, you know, maybe wrath, right? Wrath is one. Envy is another. Um, you know, I think envy is going to be the, the kind of quintessential sin of something like Instagram, right? That I mean, the, 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 the problem with these platforms is, and again, they, they're leveraging existing human vices and tendencies, and then they're just kind of like turning them up to level 10, right? Um, and so our natural human tendency is to always kind of think that somebody else has it better than us, right? We, we're, we're much more acquainted with our own problems than with our other people's problems, and each of us tries to put on a kind of good, a brave face to the world. And so other people just naturally seem to have it more together than we do, right? Because they just try not to show how not together they have it, right? And so that always creates this temptation to think, you know, that person's life is better than my life. I wish I had their life. But when you're actually living interpersonally in community with people, there's a limit to how much someone can do that. If they, if they're, if they don't have their life together, you can kind of, you know, you can kind of tell perhaps, um, just, you know, perhaps the way their kids are in the pew at church. Not that I want people to judge family by how their kids are in the pew at church, actually, given my kids. But, um, you know, you you will see them day to day and figure out, you know what, they they don't have to say have it all together. Um, and, of course, you can take that a bad way, but hopefully you take that as, okay, you know, I can feel better about my own failures because I know I'm not the only one. But with these platforms, they, we have an opportunity to curate our self-presentation. And so everybody only wants to present a good face to the world, and these give you an opportunity to just present whatever aspect of yourself, and that is... As far as people can tell, that is you, even though it might be a highly distorted picture. And so that just makes it way, way easier to compare everything that you know is wrong with your life with this sort of idealized presentation that you see out there among others. So I think that's, you know, that's one to think of. Then, of course, um, you know, wrath might be the, um, the characteristic sin of, of something like Twitter. Uh, and, you know... Why is that? It's because, I mean, you think about it, like wrath is, um, wrath flourishes in, in brief moments. You know, what it, you think about losing your temper is always kind of like this, just kind of you blow off some steam and, you know, say something you really regret for like 10 seconds. And then, you know, then after that, you're like, wow, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I didn't really mean that. Whatever. Right. Uh, and so, you know, long form communication doesn't lend itself to wrath that well. You know, if you've got to write a, out a big long letter to someone, by the time you've gotten to the end of the letter, <laughs> you've probably calmed down. It's difficult to sustain a wrathful outburst for, you know, a thousand words handwritten or something. But hey, if the unit size is 280 characters, that's just perfect for just kind of blowing off steam. And the thing that diffuses wrath above all is, is seeing the effect of our wrath on other people, like seeing their facial expression when you're yelling at them or whatever. Right. Uh, and when you can't see the other person, then, um, it's, you don't, you can dehumanize them and you just see the effect of their words. Uh, and so 
it's again, it's 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 that much easier to indulge in wrath and then to to be ticked off by somebody else and just to kind of get in these these shouting matches. And I just would love, I don't know if this is exactly addressing your question, Jordan, but I want to just say beyond just like the way the platforms are designed, which we talked a lot about with algorithms and things, going back to kind of the censorship issue and the content issue on a lot of these platforms, I think we just really need to be on guard of and aware of as Christians. So on the censorship side, uh, you know, it's affecting our ability to defend and represent our traditional beliefs, um, to be able to convey what we know to be the truth of God's word and the gospel, and to defend our traditional views on marriage, family, gender, um, life, all these critical uh, beliefs that we have. And so big tech is really affecting our ability to convey those things to the public square fairly and openly. But then on the other side, which Brad mentioned, is there is other content that they are not censoring and taking down, which they were explicitly, let me just make this clear, empowered to do by Section 230. The Good Samaritan provision of Section 230 protects companies for removing content that is lewd, lascivious, violent, you know, otherwise objectionable. And so they're allowing that content to remain while taking down conservative and Christian content. And so... I feel like sometimes people aren't even aware of just the types of content that are on these sites, particularly that we should be concerned about in regards to our children. But just to mention a few, the the amount of drugs and illicit content, sexual content, pornography, which we mentioned already, um, but also just for teen girls, the amount of body image, eating disorder, self-harm content – Um, which we're seeing then an increase in depression, anxiety, the amount of uh, girls admitted to the hospital for self-harm injuries, um, increasing body image and eating disorders. And then lastly, I just want to mention, which I think is often overlooked, um, the amount of uh, transgender influencer type content on social media is really disturbing. And and if you read, you know, Abigail Schreier's book, um, Irreversible Damage, she has a whole chapter called The Influencers. And just really pointing to this this rise that we're seeing in teens transitioning or saying they have body dysmorphia um, is really unprecedented. And a lot of it can be traced back to just the amount of that type of content being promoted actively on these social media platforms. And so I think as Christians, too, we just need to be aware, you know, not only are we concerned about the the way that these platforms are designed um, in terms of the addiction or the polarization effects, but also just that the content that they're allowing to proliferate on these platforms is is often very harmful um, and, and dangerous. And we should be concerned about that um, as well as their censorship, which then affects our ability to communicate what we know to be the truth. Yeah, Claire, I've got a question on that. So. But I, I do want to get to just the overall question of the concentration of power that big tech has and how we should think about that. But you mentioned the transgender piece and my wife mentioned, I don't know how long ago that on Instagram, I don't know if it was a real or something transgender comes up. And if she felt like once you see one of those, the algorithm suddenly dials it all the way up. So then you get inundated with all of it. Is that a legitimate way? Like, is that actually happening? No, that that's precisely it. We see that these platforms are then sending 
particularly children and teens, down what I would say are really dangerous, dark rabbit holes of this type of content. Um, So whether that be sexual content, um, there's a lot of pornography on these platforms um, or or the transgender content. Once you watch one video or one reel or one post, it's just going to continue to generate more of that kind. And that's part of the, the issue we're getting at with the algorithms. Um, and so this is particularly dangerous because we know that young children in particular are very impressionable. Um, it's a hard time uh, that they're navigating <laughs> the coming of age era and figuring out who they are and feeling comfortable in their bodies. And of course, teen girls are going to be struggling with comparison and 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 not feeling comfortable in their bodies. And then if they're just seeing these transgender content and it's over and over and over, oh, well, if you just transition, then, you know, all your problems go away. And so a lot of them initially aren't struggling with body dysmorphia. Like it doesn't start that way. It starts just by watching all these influencers. And, you know, again, we were talking about, you know, what you take in really shapes you and how you view the world and how you think about these things. And I think that's the danger is that um, they're sending uh kids down these rabbit holes and they're not seeing other content. And so then you start to believe that that's what's true and accept that narrative. And I think that is really what the danger is. Yeah. And let me just add sort of qualifying what I said earlier in terms of the algorithms are not, they're just encouraging to follow the path of least resistance. I think that's true the majority of the time, but I think on a number of these hot button social issues, we, we know that, um, you know, these companies based in Silicon Valley, have a very different value structure from the average Americans. Uh, And they are not shy about using those algorithms to actively promote that value structure on a number of these, you know, issues of race and gender and, and, uh, and so on. Um, So yeah, I mean, this is something like Douglas Murray has documented in his um, Madness of Crowds is that it is, (laughs) it's bizarre if you search for some of these terms, like he says, you know, if you search for the term, um, if you search for gay couple on Google Images, you'll get a bunch of pictures of smiling gay couples. If you search for the term straight couple, you'll get a couple pictures of straight couples and a bunch of pictures of smiling gay couples. Um, so the algorithms are actively manipulated to privilege some of this content. Uh, and so, I mean, I absolutely believe that they are, um, you know, if if somebody does stumbles anywhere near something that might be, you know, a transgender influence or whatever, and the algorithm says, aha, okay, now we're just going to give you nothing but this. Right? So. And I mean, that's where I really think this is, it, it's not an overstatement to speak of this as demonic. I mean, that really is what we're dealing with. Yep. So Agreed. the last thing I want to ask you uh, is about the concentration of power. So is, is this something that's just inevitable? And I guess the follow up to that, as I think about my own Christian duty as just a general Christian, do I have a responsibility to be aware of this, to fight back in particular ways against this? Because personally, my my natural disposition is much more like, okay, Paul exhorts me to live a quiet and simple life, and I'm happy to do that and just pretend the big politics don't exist. I know that I'm probably in the minority in that in that viewpoint uh, with most people in America, but how should we think about our political engagement on this particular topic as Christians when we think about the concentration of power? Well, I think, you know, briefly I would say if we think that we have responsibility um, as Christian citizens uh, to be, you know, be in, 
be involved in the task of self-government, right? Um, which, I mean, there are some Christians that, you know, just kind of go all out. Uh, you know, some Anabaptist groups would say, no, you know, the Christian just has nothing to do with this worldly politics at all. Uh, and, uh, you know, that could be a whole other podcast engaging that. But assuming that you think that, um, you know, we live in a constitutional democracy in which the the people are the power is supposed to be accountable to the people and the people are equipped with various means of of making their voice felt and advocating for justice and therefore we as christians should use those avenues as much as possible to uh, hold our authorities accountable to to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly before god well then we need so if that if all that is the case then um it's that doesn't that responsibility doesn't disappear just because something isn't officially part of the government. I mean, the fact is that a lot of these big tech entities function on the scale of they are um, all the companies that Claire mentioned at the beginning are. Um, I don't know all. I think it may be the case that all of them, maybe except Twitter at this point, have are larger than the state of California in terms of their annual revenues. Right, <laughs> the state of California is not known for having a slim budget. Right. Um, so these are large governmental level in entities exercising de facto governmental powers in terms of uh, the censorship that they that they do. Uh, and so, if we if we're concerned about unaccountable political authority, and we think that as Christians we should probably you know try to hold our political authority accountable, then we should certainly feel that way about de facto political authorities. Uh, that are sort of floating free of constitutional and legal restraints. And so I think we do have a responsibility as Christian citizens to seek to bring these companies really under the rule of law and fully accountable to the political systems that we are. Yes, I would agree with everything that uh, Pratt said. And I think that, you know, something to just note is that the concentration of power that these companies have does not need to be inevitable. Um, I think that there's a long tradition or long Republican tradition in our country just that, um, you know, these are at the end of the day, they're political decisions. And so the political choices we make are really what then influence our economy. And so we don't have to allow a huge concentration of wealth and power. You know, the founders believed that huge concentrations of wealth and power would be poisonous to the republic. And Theodore Roosevelt uh, really picked up this Republican tradition, um, believing in the government of the common man, that we all, the common man has a stake in our government. And as Brad was saying, that as Christians, we want to be involved in this task of self-government. And so I think just there is this strong correlation between economic and political power. And we want it, if we want it to be a republic of the common man, then there, um, you know, there are political decisions and choices that need to be made to ensure that, you know, oligarchies aren't essentially ruling our country. Um, and it's not a government that is determined by these strong economic interests, but it really is a government where the common man gets to influence um, how that government operates. And so, um, you know, I would just say that 
Uh, Senator Josh Hawley's book, The Tyranny of Big Tech, came out this past year. He really traces a lot of this historical tradition in our country and studies a lot of how uh, Theodore Roosevelt approached uh, these issues. And I think just kind of hearkening back to that as a model for how we should think about big tech today, that they really are a tyranny um, and that we do need to hold them accountable um, in order to preserve, uh, you know, our republic for the common man. Awesome. Well, obviously, we've only scratched the surface here. So what I want to know is from each of you, where would you say the best place is to find you and your work to keep up with it and to learn more about all that's going on here? So I'll start with Brad this time since I started with Claire to to open the show. Brad, I I know you've got stuff on the Davenant Institute, so maybe you can talk about a little bit of that as well. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, in theory, the best place to follow me and my work is at fontesjournal.com. I have a personal blog there, but I haven't blogged there in almost two months. Um, and then I have a personal website that hasn't been updated in even longer. So, uh, <laughs> but, um, yes, I, I, I will be, even if I'm not actively blogging at the Ad Fontes blog, I do have a sticky post where I try to keep, I'm going to keep updated with where, when I've been posting, uh, like I write in a lot of different venues, so and I'll kind of be linking to all that there. Um, I do write a roughly weekly, it's not, um, the, the scheduling is kind of all over the place, but roughly weekly column for World Magazine, World Opinions. Uh, so for kind of you know bite-sized commentary on social and political issues from a Christian theological viewpoint, uh, but also longer form articles and number of venues. But yeah, check out Ad Fonte's journal. You'll find, you know, the Davin Institute is doing really important work in this area of the intersection of theological formation, politics, and culture. So um, you can see my work there and a lot of my colleagues. Um, as for my work, um, thank you for giving us an opportunity to plug where you can find these things. Um, so the Ethics and Public Policy Center has a website if you just Google e ppc.org and we have a big tech project page and so if you go to our big tech project page that's where we have collected kind of all the news articles op-eds and publications i've written are there as well as panel discussions that we've had we've had a couple different video uh, panels as well as resources Um, we put out resources at the end of last week specifically for what Congress can do and what states can do to restrict children's access um, to pornography online. So that's a recent resource that's up there if of interest. And then I also run a weekly newsletter. We call it the Big Tech Weekly Wrap-Up, which is just a curation of, uh, you know, the kind of top news items from the past week related to Big Tech. And so you can subscribe for that newsletter on that project page as well. Awesome. Well, this has been tremendously fun and enlightening. So I want to say thank you to both of you for joining us and talking through it. Uh, I encourage all of you who are listening to check out both of the resources. So the newsletter, the eppc.org, as well as Braz Davenant Institute. Um, I think obviously if you've listened this far, you can tell that they're both fabulous people and that you should read their stuff. So I commend it. Go check it out. Find it. Learn more. Enjoy it. And as always, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon.